Welcome to Studio 2 on a Thursday. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Mark Eichmann in for Avi Wolfman Aaron. Coming up, we cannot ignore the heat outside, no, we whether we want to or not. And the fact is some, some neighborhoods are hit harder than others by that heat. Climate Central just released a new study that showed a significant difference between urban and suburban temperatures, part of the heat islands phenomenon. We want to hear from you. Yeah, and that's right. We, how are you dealing with all this heat? What do you want to know about extreme temperatures? Email us at studio2 at whyy.org. Again, that's studio2 at whyy.org. By the way, Mark, I'm so excited to be working with I'm you today. very happy to be here. So we're going to also talk about the potential for a Roosevelt Boulevard subway extension in a few minutes. A lot of people are really passionate about getting that increased public transit but it's low on the priority list for others. We'll get the latest from Jay Arzu, who will join us live right here in Studio 2. And Tanya Pendleton has some suggestions for events to check out this weekend, too, in the heat, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, but first, Cherry, I've done the show before. I yes. listen at noon, of course. <laughs> I know it's time to look at some of our top stories. What do we got? Yeah, and one story I really liked. It's exciting. Uh, the city's... Philadelphia annual International Unity Cup will get its first women's soccer tournament. Um, My history with the Unity Cup goes back to 2016. Um, It was designed to celebrate the diversity of Philadelphia neighborhoods. I used to cover the Unity Cup and it's a soccer World Cup like tournament over the course of several months and teams represent different countries. They were supposed to bring in a women's division back in 2020, but then you know what happened. The pandemic hit. Um, The tournament, while it is run by the city, it is privately funded. And so they had to get a new sponsor. The city has not revealed yet who that new sponsor is, but it said it will announce once the patron, quote, is back from Australia. So... Hint, hint. We'll so see what's tuned. going on with that. Um, but this was announced as Wednesday in West Philly. Uh, this will be the eighth Unity Cup. and But the first time women are actually going to be playing and have their own division is pretty good. Soccer's having a really big moment in the city with the international teams coming in this past weekend. Mm-hmm. I was at some of those games. And to see, like, the... Just it's just such a world sport. It is, and to see that celebrated uh, in the city, and now to even expand to a women's division in that is going to be really exciting this fall. And and full disclosure, friends, I am not a huge soccer person. You could look at me and probably tell. <laughs> However, Unity Cup games are really cool because it brings all sorts of neighborhoods together. Folks speak in all sorts of languages. The food is really amazing. Um, and it's just it's just really cool. And I have to say, I love that the ladies are getting involved. Their games begin September 9th. The championship games for both the men's and women's divisions are scheduled for October 14th. And so that's you the can time. check it out. And, and it's all free. And that's the time to be playing soccer. It is. In the fall. Oh, yeah. Not right now. We, I was Not at the with games. all this heat. I was at the games over the weekend. And it was it was it was hot, and it's even it's even hotter now, uh, you know. So that tra- takes us to the, to our yes. next top story is uh, you know is the the heat of course, and I know we'll get into that a little bit later in the hour. Uh, but what what's a better way to cool off than jumping into one of the like city's pool. yeah. public pools? Uh, but unfortunately, despite a lot of efforts uh, earlier in the year to fully staff. Uh, lifeguards at these pools there's there's another lifeguard shortage Mm -hmm. and i feel like we've talked about this in years past uh, a lot there's a feature in the new york times uh really highlighting the the problem in city pools uh, again of of not all of them being open uh you know and and neighbors are frustrated uh, yeah rightly so especially as we're enduring you know 
100 degree heat index over this next couple of days. So it's it, it's really a tough issue to solve, I guess, to get enough lifeguards to 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 get yeah. in charge of these pools and to keep an, keep an eye on the kids. And what's so crazy is the city has done everything they can. I mean, they've thrown bonuses. And I mean, these are like $1,000 bonuses yeah. at it. They've, they're paying really well. Um, but you think about it. The pools have been not really fully opened. And in order to learn how to swim, you kind of need access to a pool. So if you're a kid in some of these neighborhoods, your pools haven't been opened you are not qualified to be a, a lifeguard because you probably don't know how to swim very well. Right. And despite the city offering training, if you don't know how to swim to begin with, you're not going to even sign up for the extra uh, to be a lifeguard if you're if you're not mm-hmm. in that situation. So it really is kind of that systemic problem baked into the history of not having pools open as consistently as the city would like has led us to this point where we're again seeing pools closed and it highlighted uh, in, in the New York, in the New York times, this kind of frustration for these people. Yeah. It's, it's interesting when the New York times is doing a, a Philly focused story, it's like, it's a pretty big deal. And another thing that's a pretty big deal is equal payday, right? Today is equal payday for black women. That means it takes until today during the year for a black woman to earn a salary equal to her white non-Hispanic male counterpart. Now, it's shocking for some people to to think about that, but in Pennsylvania, black women earn about 60 cents on every dollar to their white male counterparts. That's a gap of about $25,799 each year for more than 218,000 plus black women across the state. Those those are really big numbers to think about how far we are into the year Mm -hmm. is... (laughs) It's it's almost mind blowing. Yeah, it, it sounds kind of shocking. Yeah. yeah, and what's interesting is that you know Latinas earn about fifty five cents on the dollar, so they even it takes even longer for Latinas to catch up. But there is legislation, the Equal Pay Act of nineteen seventy three, prohibits men and women to be paid differently. Yet these disparities still exist. Yeah, I guess that's a difficult thing to def- to enforce if you don't know. Yeah. What person down the hall who is is a man or is a different uh is different than you is making if you don't know that Mm -hmm. then how do you know (laughs) that that, you're being yeah you can enforce this equal pay act of of 63 yeah exactly and and so that's why there's big push for pay transparency um there's also um a push in many states including delaware and new jersey and new york for um employers to not ask you how much you used to make because you end up stuck because they usually base your offer on your salary history. Right. So, so you're, now you yeah. li- it's limited yourself to what you're able to earn at the new company if exactly. they know you've earned less exactly. at the old company. Yeah. So yeah. So there we go. But there's a big push now for pay transparency. And you know, people feel a little squiggly about that. They don't want to tell you how much they make. Yet people are still doing it secretly and kind of off the record. So. Yeah, and 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 I think the the more the more transparency you get, obviously, the more information we're about news and information here. I think that's the, the better it could it could be. Exactly, exactly. And we're talking food now. Yeah, a, a real a real shift here. Yeah, I was not a lima bean person when I was growing up mm-hmm. at all. No matter what my my mom set the timer and said to get finish this plate of of lima beans. And mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of lima bean haters out there like me, but uh, USDA is now working to to change the image of the lowly <laughs> lima bean uh, and 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 make them a little bit more palatable to people to to people like me. Okay. Um, they're also known as butter beans. Which I didn't know. Yeah. Um, and we called them butter beans when I was growing up. Um, apparently, they, they're very nutritious, 
which is why your mom probably tried to make you eat them. Um, they're beneficial for farming and the soil, and they hold up in the weather. That's why they want people to eat these llama beans. I will tell you that um, my mom put ham in the in the butter beans, and I thought they were delicious. That could have changed the game for me. Yeah, I mean, it's just like you think about Brussels sprouts, which were not sexy. Same you throw thing. some bacon, and you and you you know saute some butter sprouts, put some olive oil in there. I know it's a big thing on in, in you know popular restaurants now, Brussels sprouts, but I still have those memories from childhood of. Not, yeah, not liking the breast spots. They're delicious it. now. They're Can't delicious. <laughs> and so talking about change of perception, like people kind of shifting their perspective about things. It's a perfect pivot to our newsmaker. Um, the recent collapse and ongoing repair of Interstate 95 in Northeast Philly sounded the alarm once again for the need for expanded mass transit across Access, excuse me, expanded mass transit access along Roosevelt Boulevard. And they got some city council members to step up and push efforts to reconsider a plan for a Roosevelt Boulevard subway extension. And we have someone who is a very strong advocate of that extension here with us. Jay Arzu is a doctoral student of city and regional planning at the University of Pennsylvania Stuart Weitzman School of Design. And he's here in studio too. welcome. Well, thank you very much, Cherry. Thank you, Mark, for having me. It's great to be here. Jay, thank, thanks for being here. It, you know, this project was essentially dead, and, and somehow it was resurrected. And I guess that's sort of the history of this project, of, of being kind of resurrected and talked about over the years. Tell us about the project and, and, and why you think now is the perfect time for that resurrection to bring this back. So to be as brief as possible... The city of Philadelphia has gone through, a, in a sense, a boom and bust with the Roosevelt Boulevard subway where every 10 to 20 years they revisit the idea of building the subway and they recognize that it's something that should be done. But then due to funding or other pressing issues at the time, um, the can is further you know, kicked down the road. So what we're trying to do is to stop kicking the can down the road and at the same time create tens of thousands of jobs creating this subway and better connecting Northeast Philadelphia to other opportunities throughout the region and vice versa. The time is now to get it done. Yeah, so let's talk about the project for folks who may not have heard about it. Explain um, what the problem is that it seeks to solve and and what the project will look like. Right. So when you look at a map of Philadelphia today and look at a, a SEPTA map, you see that the majority of the region is connected to either the heavy rail lines, which are, you know, the Market Frankfurt line or the Broad Street line or regional rail lines. But when you look at northeastern, uh, the northeast section of Philadelphia, you see that there's two regional rail lines that skirt the region, but the center of the region where the majority of people live along Roosevelt Boulevard um, is not well-serviced. And that's something that transportation planners have noticed for decades and why they continue to, in a sense, every 20 years, repropose it because it is a massive transportation inequity. Uh, there's four, excuse me, there's 500,000 people that live in Northeast um, and don't have access to rapid transit. And building the Roosevelt Boulevard subway would, would, would move to solve that problem. It would be a 15-mile extension of the Broad Street subway mm-hmm. with a one-mile extension of the Market Frankfurt line to meet the, the Broad Street extension at Bustleton. So that would be a major transportation hub there. But it would be transformative, and it would cut... 
um, congestion on the boulevard and at the same time reduced um, travel times from people coming from Northeast by up to half an hour. So this is transformational. And I guess the big, the biggest question mark and, and maybe some of the biggest pushback uh, against this, SEPTA CEO Leslie Richards was on uh, Studio 2 a couple of months mm-hmm. ago, uh, you know, and she said the project isn't feasible because of the cost, because of the budget. And I think that's something that SEPTA is dealing with on, on a whole lot of other issues as well. Um, is that is that a legitimate uh, kind of holdback on this because it, it's expensive? That's true. First of all, uh, we don't know how expensive it is until PennDOT comes out with uh, updated numbers, which they'll be doing this fall. Um, second, uh, there are federal programs that we could utilize to help pay for the project. Um, there's, of course, the capital investment grants that we could use that would pay up to 50% of the project. But to do that, we have to meet our local match. And to be able to do that, we need more localized funding for SEPTA. So that's something that's being worked on in the PA House right now that would give SEPTA and other uh, transportation agencies the, a way to find more localized funding, but it, it's very possible. It may not seem possible today, but give it, you know, we, we get the, the localized funding and we use these different grants and discretionary grants and programs from the Federal Transit Administration. It is very affordable, surprisingly. Yeah. And so, you know, um, there has been this stop start for more than 100 years. Um, I want you to briefly tell me, like, I mean, it started out in 1913. There were people who were gun ho about this project, skipped a few decades, came back 48, 60s, 70s, get into 2000s. I mean, why is this zigzag going on with this project? So at least with the first few um, proposals in the 19, you know, 1910s, unfortunately, due to World War One, the U.S. entry into World War One, that didn't happen. And then looking back at 48, what people don't recognize is that at the time, after World War II, in downtown Philadelphia, the Market Frankfurt uh, subway, which is now in use, um, but at that time it was actually mothballed and not fully used, so they had to bring that back into, you know, they had mm. to fix that. But at the same time, now um, the Locust subway, which is now used by Patco, was also abandoned. So there was a, a, a lot of abandoned subways in downtown Philadelphia that had to be you know, actually brought back, which they were by the mid fifties. So after that was done, yeah, you know, move. There was a study that literally came out in nineteen sixty, and you know, spoke about uh, the idea of the subway in the median of a new northeast expressway. So uh, looking at the nineteen sixties and seventies proposal, it would have been like what they have in Chicago, where the trains are in the middle of a massive expressway. But ultimately, there was community opposition to the mm. expressway. Um, and I think that that was more of the reason why that wasn't done then. But then subsequently, uh, Mayor Frank Rizzo had to choose between the Roosevelt Boulevard subway and the Center City connector, which is, you know, how the commuter rail lines go through Center City. And so we're this has been this. There's always been an issue. <laughs> it seems like right. year after year after year. But now after I-95, the focus is again and city council wants to at least look at it. 
Yes, and they uh, unanimously passed the resolution to have hearings. So, you know, that uh, initial vote wasn't supposed to happen to the fall. They were going to vote in the fall to have hearings, but they they recognized the need, uh, the city council, and they passed the resolution so that we could start having these hearings and bringing together community members to have further conversations about why the subway is needed and just to give opinions. We want the public to come out, and this is going to be happening in either late September or early October. We're going to have a few hearings. Are you confident that the the political will that moved those votes up will, will be enough to sort of keep this going as, as the months move on from 90 from what happened in 95 i'm deadly confident um and i'll tell you why um when people start to see the numbers come out for the subway project the amount of daily riders the amount of jobs the tens of thousands of jobs that a project this size could create um you know it's i i think that it's going to open up a lot of eyes people who may be not fully on board now will get on board All right. Well, thank you so much. We'll leave it there. You've been listening to Jay Arzu, a very strong advocate of the Roosevelt Boulevard Subway Extension Project. Thanks so much for being here, Jay. Coming up next, hot, hot heat islands and their effect on urban communities. Email us, studio2 at whyy.org. Supporting WHYY, Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? This is Studio 2, and I'm Cherry Gregg. To say it's hot today would be an understatement. Temperatures have gotten so extreme in so many regions that President Joe Biden is announcing new measures aimed at helping communities deal with the scorching heat. Those are expected to improve forecasting, ensure access to drinking water, and extend protection to workers most vulnerable to heat-related deaths. At the same time, a new report from Climate Central shows that cities can be more than 12 degrees hotter at their core than surrounding areas with different infrastructure and more green spaces. It makes hotter days even more unbearable And due to climate change, it will get worse without action. Here to explain heat islands and how to make cities cooler is Caitlin Trudeau. She is a senior research associate at Climate Central. Caitlin, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you so much for having me. And we want to hear from you. We want to know what you think about the extreme heat. Email your questions and comments to Studio Two at whyy.org. Again, the email is studio2 at whyy.org. So, Caitlin, we're going to jump right in. For folks who may not know, can you explain to us what an urban heat island is? Yeah, definitely. So when we talk about urban heat islands, what we're really talking about are cities that experience significantly warmer temperatures than the surrounding rural areas. So you can think of it like a like a little heat dome that sits over our most populated parts of the city. And so Climate Central did a study looking at heat islands across the country. Explain the scope of the study and what you all found. Yeah, so what we did is we looked at the 44 most populated cities in the United States. And we looked to see how many people are impacted by this additional heat that is caused by the urban heat island effect. 
Um, and what we found is that about 41 million Americans are living in places where the city uh, infrastructure and materials make it at least eight degrees warmer um, than if the city were built differently, than it would be outside the city. So a lot of people are living in areas with a lot of additional heat that makes it really hard when we have these, you know, increased temperatures, more frequent heat waves that are happening because of climate change. Yeah. And I want to zoom out a bit because part of the problem, and you touched on it in your answer there, is just how the cities are built and designed. Can you explain a little bit about what the issues are that lead cities to have this excessive heat? Yeah. So one of the things is the materials that we use to build our city. So when we built our cities, we replaced a lot of vegetation and natural landscape with hard, dark-colored materials to build our streets and our buildings. So things like asphalt, concrete, brick, these materials are really good at absorbing incoming heat from the sun, and they radiate it back out to the surrounding environment, making it warmer. Um, And the unfortunate is because we replaced the green space, the green space actually helps cool the city by reflecting um, more of the incoming solar radiation. So as we've built, we build more dark colored hard materials that trap in that heat, but then also how we make, how we build our cities matters too. So the dimensions and spacing of our buildings can make a big difference. Cities with lots of tall buildings, cities with narrow streets, those are better at trapping heat in and also blocking natural air wind flow. So um, it's not only what our cities are built and made of, but how we build them as well. Yeah. And can you go into a little bit more depth? Because I want you to sort of give me an example. Um, and, And we have, you know, Philadelphia is a heat island, so to speak. Give me an example of the differences between the way you would see a suburb design and built that makes it a little bit cooler versus what you would see in an urban center. Right. So in our urban centers, we have really tall buildings. Um, we've got narrow streets. We've got a lot of people. That's another thing, too, our human activity. Um, you know, we release a lot of pollution from driving our cars, from factories, and even from using things like our air conditioners. Those things all warm the city even further. Um, you know, out in the suburbs, you're probably going to have not as tall buildings. You're probably going to have more green space, more area for green space. Um, and, you know, you're probably going to have wider streets. Areas where basically the air can flow more freely and evenly and not get trapped like in big cities. Yeah. And we I just mentioned that Philadelphia is a a heat island. And so I want to bring in um, one of our our folks on the ground here in the city uh, by introducing Jamile Telez Lieberman, Senior Vice President of Development, Research and Health Equity at Esperanza. Welcome to Studio Two, Jamile. Thank you for having me. And so uh, it's hot here in Philly today. And I know there's a lot of work being done to mitigate urban heat island effect here in our own backyard. But before we talk about that, uh, the Philadelphia Department of Health issued a heat health emergency. Uh, can you explain to me what that means for the folks in our neighborhoods and how will that heat health emergency, emergency declaration help them? Yeah, so I remember seeing... Um uh, that that declaration go out. And I also got a text. I got an email and a text um, about that. And so um, first, I just want to flag uh, that both of those messages that came to me were in English. Mm. Um, and so that's an interesting thing we can talk about um, in terms of language access to information. Um, but, you know, I think that, you know, the, the emergency warning 
means the same thing for all of us, but also different things for some of us, because it's true, all of us in this city are going to be suffering um, due to these sweltering temperatures. Um, and it's going to raise the risks of heat related illnesses across the city. But we know that there are some neighborhoods that when it gets hot, they get much hotter than other neighborhoods. So the neighborhood that we serve, um, Hunting Park, Juniata, Feltonville up here in North Philly, um, in terms of uh, Nueva Esperanza Inc. service area is one of the hottest neighborhoods in the city, you know, regardless of the temper, the general trends in temperatures. Um, and that's due to the built environment, redlining, um, and lack of tree tree canopy. Um, so for our folks up here, the risks in terms of heat-related illnesses like heat exhaustion, heat stroke, as well as just general uncomfortableness, right, are going to be much more profoundly felt here than in other neighborhoods like West Mount Airy or Chestnut Hill, right? Um, so you know, it's really going to be extremely, extremely hot here. Yeah. And um, our neighbors are going to feel it. They're really going to feel it. And they're going to have to contend with that. And then there's other mitigating factors here in terms of access to cooling, which we can talk about if if that's if we want that to be part of the conversation, that is going to make it more difficult for them to cope with these more extreme temperatures. Yeah. And if you're just tuning in, uh, we are talking about heat islands and Philadelphia is one of those we have on the line with us, Caitlin Trudeau, Senior Research Associate at Climate Central, a nonprofit that published a recent study on heat islands. We also have Ajamale um, Telez Lieberman, SVP of Development at Esperanza. Uh, and, we're, and if we want to hear from you as well, be part of the conversation. Email us your comments, questions, or concerns at studio2 at whyy.org. Caitlin, I want to give you a moment to um, respond to what Jamale just said. I mean, this, this is happening everywhere. Um, and you heard about some of the impacts that this excessive heat is having on folks in neighborhoods uh, like Hunting Park, how is this impacting residents of other cities who are grappling with these heat islands? Well, we're seeing a lot of the same things. I and mean, we're seeing that some of the places that are the warmest are often in the neighborhoods where you have a lot of low-income population, you have a lot of people of color, people who maybe can't afford air conditioning as easily as other people. So we're really seeing a disproportionate impact um, on, on peoples in the cities as well which is really concerning because, you know, everything she said, all of the related heat impacted impacts are going to increase, um, you know, as we have more pollution, it's going to warm our cities as well. People with asthma, it's going to cause a lot more increased health impacts across the city. But we're seeing this all across the United States. It's not something that's just in one part of the U.S. We're seeing it all over. I mean, at least nine cities we looked at had at least one million people that are exposed to this additional eight degrees temperature at all times. Um, so it's really concerning because we have a lot of people who are at risk and a lot of people who may not be able to respond or adapt as easily as others. Yeah. And and Jamale, you've been quoted as saying it's almost like our neighborhood was designed this way. I want you to get specific and tell us what are some of, what are some of the issues that has led to this problem and continue to make it hard for residents to combat this heat? Sure. Um, quickly, I do want to make a, a correction to my title. I'm SVP of Community Engagement, Research, and Health Equity um, here at Esperanza. Uh, the, the SVP of Development is Christine Nieves, actually. Um, 
And I oversee the Housing Economic Development Division, which is the community engagement arm for the institution, as well as the new Institute for Latino Health Equity. So I just wanted to put that on the record real quick. Thank you um, for that. So yes, when, yeah, of, of course. Um, so when we when we talk about why things are hot, why is it so hot up here? It's really by design, right? And so to get specific, um, our neighborhood, as opposed to other neighborhoods in the city, and this is true for cities across the country, which I'm sure Caitlin can comment on, um, has been victimized in terms of lack of investment and racist housing policies and development policies, like redlining, um, that have, and also as um, also uh, displacement of uh, communities of color being pushed out of their original neighborhoods farther north in the city. And this is for, this is in terms of Philadelphia, right? Um, and so what that means is that they end up being pushed um, by different mechanisms, including, you know, uh, housing policies, displacement, um, and other things uh, into neighborhoods that were not necessarily made ready to welcome people um and so we we're they we have a, a lot of residents up here who are living in a neighborhood that's in, very industrial so there's a lot of asphalt there's a lot of pavement and that attracts heat it does not reflect it and then also in terms of trees our neighborhood doesn't get a lot of trees um where esperanza has worked for many many years to increase the tree canopy for our neighborhood um, alongside many amazing grassroots groups um and also um some organizations at the city level to try to increase our tree canopy to invest in um some more longer term cooling strategies but at the same time knowing that the needs are so critical at this time and they're only going to get worse we're also you know looking at other more immediate solutions um in terms of of heat mitigation and, and being able and for people to be able to cope to heat so really um what it comes down to is issues of race issues of class issues of color um, issues of uh, where money is going and where resources are going and to who. And our community continues to lose out. Our community, which is a community of color and mostly low income, as well as um, having a lot, uh, a, a growing number of immigrants from other countries. So um, I think that's really what it boils down to. Um, but I also think that there are ways that we can address that. Yeah. And I, I want to mention that you in the introduction, I talked about how President Biden is expected to announce new measures and funding designed to help communities deal with extreme heat. Um, and, and Caitlin, I want to ask you, what are some of the things that can be put in place infrastructure wise that can help? I mean, um, John Malay talked about, you know, tree canopies and other opportunities to, to bring in cooling on cooling measures, what are some of the infrastructure opportunities here? Absolutely. Well, I mean, the number one thing is increasing green space, right? Trees, vegetation. Um, what one of the things I think is really great is changing what our building rooftops are. You know, they're they're usually black, dark surfaces. Um, if you can add greenery to the tops of roofs, um, it actually reflects a lot of that that solar radiation. They have uh, rooftop gardens, eco roofs, even just a layer of plants, shrubs. Um, you can also paint rooftops white and white and bright colored rooftops actually reflect a lot of the incoming solar radiation. So they cool the building inside 
and make it so less people have to use air conditioning. So really changing the tops of our roofs. We really can't rebuild our cities that are already built, but we can make some changes like changing our rooftops, like adding more trees, more vegetation, um, and using smarter building materials, um, using cool pavements, paving materials on sidewalks and parking lots that uh, remain cooler than conventional pavements. Um, and just thinking about how, you know, how we build our cities from now on, if we need to build more of our cities, and if we do, how to do so smartly in ways that uh, will will reduce the, the urban heat island effect. Thank you very much. And, and speaking of solutions and people on the ground getting the work done, I want to bring in Mika Outlaw, a community activist and founder of Residents Organized for Advocacy and Direction, who's working uh, to help cool down her neighborhood of Grays Ferry. Welcome to Studio Two, Mika. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. Yes. And um, I want to just you're doing the work of trying to cool your neighborhood. And you said when you kind of realized that it wasn't normal for areas outside the city to be cooler with fresher air than those in the city to have thicker, heavier air and to be so warm. So you got to work. Tell me about the work you're doing to help cool things off. Well, right now we're actually, and I'm really excited about this, um, we're working in partnership with uh, Drexel Community, um, Drexel University on a cooling project where um, two blocks in Grace Ferry, one of them being the 2600 block of Ofer Street and two blocks in Point Breeze, they, um, 15 residents per block, received planner benches, um, benches that were made by people from the community with um, vegetation in it and an umbrella. And it allows for people to come sit outside, um, especially if you um, live on the sunny side of the street. Um, My aunt lives on the sunny side of the street. So when she wants to come sit outside, she has to chase the shade. Yeah. Um, and what I mean by that is the shade is on one side of the street. And so when it moves, she has to move. And now with her having this planter bench, it allows for her to be able to sit out there um, on the sunny side of the street. And the temperature under the umbrella is not as hot yeah. for her. Um, and she's she's able to sit out. Um, so I'm really excited about that project. We've also been working with um Mr. Maurice and Ahmad Amalki from, um, excuse me, I'm sorry, from the clean, Mm -hmm. from the clean water organization. And we had um, where um, the office of the Philadelphia office of sustainability. Yeah. And Mika, I think you're dealing with. Yeah. And Mika, I think our connection with you is a little tenuous. Um, I, could you just, and so um, we're probably going to have to wrap this up, but you are doing work to, with the, and I, and I couldn't hear the last thing you said. Okay, I think we lost uh, Mika. Um, again, that was Mika Outlaw. She's an activist working to help cool off her neighborhood, uh, a Point Breeze, a lot uh, a Grace Ferry, excuse me, a lot of work being done on the ground. Um, John Millet, I want to bring you back in um, to talk about some of the work that you all have been doing um, as well. And you heard me mention to Caitlin some of this effort um, by the Biden administration to provide funds, to provide some new measures. Uh, what do you think you need 
to um, help make a difference, especially as we deal with climate change? Yeah, I think that's a great question, especially since um, my division, in particular at Esperanza, are are also activists on the ground. Um, you know, uh, especially my staffer Ivana Gonzalez, who leads some of our environmental justice initiatives. Um, so that's a good question. I loved some of the suggestions that Caitlin mentioned, sort of altering the built environment in ways that are smart and efficient, painting roofs. Um, I think that's you know, those innovative solutions are great, but then also like we have to think about how we do that equitably. So it's, it's you're just doing it smartly, right? Innovation mm -hmm. and then also equitable. So like, how do we go about doing those kinds of changes? Because, you know, we should not expect our community members who are struggling to pay their utility bills um, and to put food on the tables to, um, pay for that, to repaint their, their, their roofs. Right. So I think that it, it comes, it's, it's important to consider sort of like the allocation of resources, where the resources are going and who they're going to and what um, what are those resources, like what programs and what type uh, are they funding, right? So I think the Biden administration needs to think about, you know, we don't just want the most innovative things um, we do, right? We do want science to lead what we're going to do in terms of helping to lower the temperatures in, in urban areas. But we also know that we can't just throw money at something and, and then expect it to have an effect or it to have an equitable effect where um, uh, families and communities and neighborhoods that are most affected by heat are the ones that are served first, right? Um, because the risks for those neighborhoods are higher than other neighborhoods. I mean, that's just a fact um, because not all cities are cookie cutter in the same. And even in, in our city in Philadelphia, one block is so different from another block. Mm. Um, and one zip code is vastly different in terms of temperature, air quality, all of that. So I think the Biden administration needs to think um, creatively and they need to think equitably when it comes to things like that. And, you know, I do think that it's tree canopy is really important. We do want to invest in that, and Esperanza has been working to do that to lower temperatures long term and also improve air quality. But we also started thinking about weatherization of homes, and, and Caitlin mm -hmm. sort of, um, you know, um, sort of uh, touched on this a little bit. Like, how do we make homes more energy efficient, right? Yeah. Because for us, we like to look at solutions that address multiple needs at once. So if we're making a home that's more energy efficient, that has proper cooling, then people can be cooled in their homes in addition to having alternative greeting like benches, like um, Mika was mentioning, outside of their homes. But then they also save money in addition to being part of uh, more climate, more pro-climate um, solutions, like having uh, an energy-efficient weatherized home. So I think we need to do a lot of things at once, and we need to be really careful about, um, you know, who gets what resources and when they get them, and then, you know, just trying to identify solutions that yeah. meet the realities of where communities are. One solution that might work for a neighborhood in, in South Philly is not necessarily going to work out for mm -hmm. a neighborhood in North Philly, and this might be the same for other cities. So I think we just need to be cognizant of that, and I hope that the Biden administration will think along those lines as they're trying to invest in reducing some of these consequences. So reprioritization and flexibility when we talk solutions. Um, thank you for that. Um, if you are just tuning in, we're talking about heat islands. Philadelphia is has several uh, neighborhoods that are heat islands. We have on the line with us Caitlin Trudeau, Senior Research Associate at Climate Central. They published a study about heat islands. We also have John Malay, Telez Lieberman, SVP 
of Community Engagement at Esperanza. Um, and you just heard from Mika Outlaw, community activist working to cool down her Gray's Ferry neighborhood. I want to bring in an email, and this is for you, Caitlin. It's from Warren. Over the last few years, the city has put down the darkest color imaginable in its repaving program. It's dead black. At the same time, the city is encouraging trees and things like rooftop gardens. Can repaving be executed at the same time as urban improvement? Also, similar email from Meg. Why is blacktop still being used? And I'm thinking about climate change here, Caitlin. Um, you know, we heard what uh, John Malay had to say about some of the solutions. And yet you still see cities, not just Philly, probably other cities still using old methods uh, to build. How are we going to tackle climate change and what should folks be pushing for policy wise to make sure that this shift happens now? Absolutely. I mean, I live in Sacramento and I just yesterday saw a brand new pavement going on like right outside my apartment. And it's really upsetting because knowing how much heat is retained in these dark surfaces, it's it's just seems senseless. Um, and, and we really do need to be prioritizing this now. We should have prioritized it yesterday, last year, last decade, um, last half century. We, we uh, are really behind. So it, it is frustrating because we do need our community leaders to step up and realize that this is something that is important that we need to do now that is for our city's health and for, yeah, definitely so many people are being disproportionately affected. It's definitely, we need to do it equitably. I think that was a great point there. And um, yeah, I mean, we need to be using smarter materials like cool pavements, things, you know, using the same black asphalt isn't going to help anyone and it's going to make it more costly, more deadly to address in the future. Yeah. And Jamale, uh, you focus on this. We want to talk about climate change. You mentioned that it's getting real in communities, more floods, higher electric bills, people getting sicker uh, because of the heat. Um, Who are you focused on and what agencies are you pushing right now to make sure that changes are prioritized for the communities you serve? Yeah, great. Um, Thanks for that question. So we're doing a a lot of things on a lot of different fronts. We are pushing the city in terms of helping us, you know, increase our tree canopy and also rolling out new programs for tree maintenance to keep those trees alive, right? Because just planting the trees, you know, that's if you can't keep them alive because of the heat, because the need of watering or other nuisances associated with trees that are not maintained, then you really um, are kind of back to square one because they do die. Right. So in addition to pushing, you know, at, at the local level for that, we're also um, we have recently produced a policy brief with community legal services, another local, um, actually, um, uh, I think they're a statewide organization around um, increasing um, state funding for the federal LIHEAP program, which um, provides people um, uh, funds to support uh, their utility bills. And so that program uh, um, helps people warm their homes um, in the winter right yeah. uh, which is a climate change thing right because we see more extreme temperatures on both ends heat and 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 cold and what we're wanting to do is to extend um the coverage of light heat for yeah. um pennsylvania and philadelphia to cover the, the hottest months because right now it basically ends yeah. in april and so they need help to cover the utility bills because people in our and neighborhood we're gonna... are and we're going to have to leave it there sorry <laughs> we're going to have to leave it there i want to say thank you so much to caitlin trudeau of Climate Central. Thanks for being on Studio 2. Also, thank you to Jamalay Telez Lieberman of Esperanza. I appreciate you both being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much.
Things to do coming up next on Studio 2. Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at PennMedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg, and we have reached the end of another week of our show. Can't believe it. We're at four months now. That means... It's time for the weekend. Looking forward to it. And as always, WHYY's Tanya Pendleton has a fantastic list of things that you can do and you don't want to miss it. When life batters you and it happens to us all, weekends can restore you. We're here with some options to free your mind, body and spirit. First, let's dance. Philadelphia Dance Day, the annual celebration of dance in the city, happens on Saturday. The event is spread over multiple venues in Center City within a two-mile radius. You can try everything from ballet to ballroom and a welcoming, inclusive atmosphere. All the events are free except for the day's finale at Plays and Players, which is ticketed and features partner lessons, open dancing, and a performance. Things get started at 10 a.m. and we'll have the schedule on our website, whyy.org slash things to do. Spending time in nature is another way to de-stress. Free Walkers, a national nonprofit that hosts long-distance walks, is behind Saturday's Wissahickon Trolley Trek. It starts at Chestnut Hill East Station and ends at 30th Street Station. Trekkers will explore lesser-known trails through Valley Green, the Mill Covered Bridge, Trolley Town, the Fingerspan Bridge, Lemon Hill, and more. Organizers say this is one of their more challenging walks, so make sure your fitness level is up to par. The free trek starts at 10.30 a.m. And considering the weekend's heat forecast, make sure you bring some extra hydration. A newly grown perfect ear of corn. It's really corn. Yep. It's been resurrected every boy. Hallelujah. Corn is having a moment. The Tony-winning Broadway musical Shucked is centered around it, and so is the first annual Sweet Corn Festival. It's happening on Saturday from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. at Charlin Farms in Bucks County. Expect plenty of corny activities, including, of course, cornhole, a corn shucking contest, live music, barrel cart and pony rides, and the corn pit. Not to mention plenty of corn to eat, which always tastes amazing on a summer afternoon. Laughter is certainly good for the soul, and you'll be doing plenty of it if you head to the heavy hitters of comedy show at the Keswick Theater. J. Anthony Brown, Red Grant, Faison Love, and Mark Curry are on the bill. These veteran performers have been on the circuit for a long time, so expect some ribald humor and to come out feeling better than when you came in. The show is on Saturday night at 7 p.m. You can always count on music to make the world easier to manage. And if you're an emerging local artist, this weekend may change the trajectory of your career. 
World Cafe Live hosts the Beta Hi-Fi Emerging Artist Festival. The winner of Saturday's finale gets $500, studio and rehearsal time, and a media opportunity. If you want to root on local artists that include Alyssa Garcia, Nervous Nikki and the Chill Pills, and Baldini and the Bastards, come through. All the performances at the fest are free. And there's another free festival in town. At the Fillmore Complex, the Alt 104.5 Fishtown Festivalt showcases music vendors and craft beer. Performances by group love Voila and local contest winner Max Davey take place in the Fillmore and at Brooklyn Bowl. They will also provide free bowling between 1 and 4 p.m. Portugal, The Man, and Snack Time and the Night with a Ticketed Show at 8 p.m. We recommend you head to that festival early. It's going to be busy. Some songs just take you back to good times and good memories. Whatever you're doing in 1984, Karma Chameleon it was likely the soundtrack. Run the 80s back one more time with Boy George and Culture Club. They'll be at The Man on Sunday. The show starts at 7 p.m. And we're pretty sure Anthony Hamilton will sing his big hit, Charlene, at his concert at the Met Philadelphia on Saturday. The show starts at 8. We'll run it back next Thursday when we return with more things to do. One, two, three into the folks. Snoop Doggy Dog and Dr. Dre is at the dope. We invite you to head to our website, whyy.org slash things to do, where you can find out more details about what you've heard and where Snoop and Wiz Khalifa will be in Jersey this weekend. And Broadway is coming to Delco. Memphis is on stage in Upper Darby. Whatever you choose to do, have a great weekend, everyone. A little hip-hop there to wrap up that segment. I have to say, I love Anthony Hamilton. The Man Center has been really doing it lately. Well, friends, that is it for Studio 2 today. And my first time hosting the show without Avi. And no Thursday trivia. But both Avi and Trivia Thursday will be back the week after next. So don't worry. Well, got to say thank you to our producers today. They are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Joan Isabella is WHYY's audio general manager. For more of our show, you can head on over to whyy.org slash studio two or download the show wherever you get your podcasts from studio two. Right here at WHYY in Philly, I'm Cherry Gregg. Thanks so much for joining us.